This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, September 26th. I'm Samantha Sheris, and joining today's episode is Bethany Allen Ibrahimian, who is the China reporter for Axios and author of the new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, who lives in Taiwan, joins today's show to discuss how, as her book title suggests, China has weaponized its economy to confront the world, how living in Taiwan and the threat of the Chinese Communist Party has changed since she started living there in 2022, and much more. We'll get to our conversation right after this. Looking for quick conservative policy solutions to current issues from America's outpost here in Washington? Sign up for Heritage's weekly newsletter, The Agenda. You'll get top conservative research, a rundown of important events happening here at Heritage that you can watch online, and hot takes from our experts. Sign up at heritage.org agenda or at the link in the show notes. Bethany Allen Ibrahimian is joining today's episode of the Daily Signal podcast. Bethany is the China reporter for Axios and author of the brand new book, Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, as I just mentioned, you have a new book out titled Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it. Yes. So um, as the, the book title suggests, what I am focusing on is the type of world that the Chinese government is trying to create, the rules that it's that it wants to impose and has, in fact, quite successfully imposed uh, around the world. And, and so what I look at primarily is economic power, the ways, quite innovative ways, in fact, that the Chinese government has used the power of its economy beyond its borders to push its illiberal and authoritarian geopolitical objectives and to change the behavior of individuals, governments, companies, and multilateral institutions. The reason I chose to focus on China's economic power is that I have, you know, I have covered China's power projection beyond its borders as a beat for about seven years. And I found that underlying much of China's power is its economic power, you know, whether that's its diplomatic power, you know, it's still to this day, a lot of the foundation of that is its economic power. What we tend to call extraterritorial censorship, you know, that the NBA and Hollywood, you know, Hollywood studios will self-censor. This is an extension of China's economic power. And so I found that, you know, at least I would say until you know, the first half of the 21st century, China's economy is the foundation of much of its power projection around the world. Now, can you walk us through some examples of, you know, how China, as the title says, weaponized its economy to confront the world? Yeah, there's many well-known examples. And I I also go through in the book some lesser-known examples. But ones that we're all familiar with would be, well, probably all familiar with would be, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, when then-Prime Minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, called for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. That was in April 2022. Uh, Sorry, April 2020. And very shortly thereafter, the Chinese government slapped a bunch of tariffs uh, on all kinds of uh, Australian 
uh, imports, including uh, wine, coal, barley, very transparently to punish the, the Australian government, to punish Morrison for making this call for you know, basic scientific fact-finding. This is something that relates to the health and the well-being of literally every single person on the planet. Every time there's a pandemic, we need to know how it started. And so the Chinese government was attempting to block this and to punish Australia um, for that. Other examples would be the NBA. So in 2019, when Daryl Morey, who was then the manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted in support of the Hong Kong pro-democracy protest. And immediately, the NBA lost contracts uh, in, in the Chinese market. The Chinese streaming websites stopped showing NBA games. Chinese e-commerce websites stopped selling uh, Houston, Rocket, Houston Rockets swag. It's estimated that the NBA lost uh, about $200 million in revenue. And there are so many examples affecting retail companies, hotels, airlines, governments, celebrities, authors, academics, you name it. Now, something that I thought was interesting, um, the last chapter of your book is titled Building a Democratic Economic Statecraft. Uh, can you walk us through some of the recommendations that you highlight in this chapter and how they can be achieved? I have two different types or two different buckets of recommendations. And one of them is we, we can put it under the category of adopting industrial policy or, or putting guardrails on economic behavior in order to promote U.S. national security and the national security of our allies and partners. And this is the area that the U.S. and other like-minded governments have already been taking concrete actions to work towards, starting with the Trump administration, continuing into the Biden administration, you know, and the EU really getting more on board now. And this is, you know, things like putting sanctions or other kinds of trade restrictions on Chinese companies that have ties to the PLA. Or, you know, as we've seen, Huawei blocking Huawei from 5G networks. Something that we we haven't seen it, that is very important and more more and more people are calling for is to create some kind of mutual economic defense treaty or organization or agreement where like-minded countries can come to each other's aid in, if one of their industries or their governments um, or overall, you know, their, their trade sector overall is targeted by Chinese government economic coercion. That hasn't happened yet. It's, you know, it's a very difficult thing to do, but there are, there is a lot more, there are a lot more people talking about it now. Mm -hmm. However, the other bucket of recommendations, and I, and I make 14 separate recommendations, are to accomplish what I describe as putting democratic guardrails back on economic behavior, which is something that I feel that the U.S. and other democratic countries have really ignored to our detriment for the past 40 years. And this is based on the understanding that economic behavior, that trade, and that money itself is morally neutral, but will be used to project the power, the, the values of the people who control it. What we have now in the world is a situation in which the Chinese government has been extremely proactive in putting authoritarian guardrails on international economic behavior. But we haven't seen very much of a countervailing democratic pushback to push back against those authoritarian values and, you know, and try to push back with our own democratic values. So some of my recommendations on this 
And because of the political nature of them, in our current environment in the US, I think would be very difficult to adopt some of them. But just to put them out there, um, one of them is campaign finance reform. So trying to get corporate money out of US politics so that it's not money shaping our policies, but rather you know, the Democratic voting populace. Another one that is, I think, more achievable would be putting sanctions on Chinese companies that have been deeply complicit in constructing the censorship ecosystem, the censorship, the censorship architecture inside of China. Why would that matter to put sanctions on Chinese companies for doing that? Because it would create a halo of deterrence around US companies and other foreign companies who would otherwise maybe have joint ventures with these Chinese companies or would otherwise, you know, maybe perhaps be self-censoring to get into the Chinese market. It would, it would create an aura, you know, of, of illegality or a halo of deterrence around self-censorship to censor on behalf of an authoritarian foreign government. And one final recommendation, again, I have 14 specific ones, but one more I'll share is to have a, a FARA structure, so a Foreign Agents Registration Act type of structure on the state level in the U.S. Right now, the Foreign Agents Registration Act is a, it's only for the federal government. And this, you know, this requires public disclosures from any person or entity or individual who is lobbying on behalf of a foreign government or entity. It doesn't ban that behavior. It merely requires public disclosures so that we know who is really behind some of this, these lobbying efforts. But those do not exist on the state level in any state. And so to have a basic level of transparency about who is trying to influence our state level government officials and lawmakers, it's very important for each state to come up with a, a system and to implement a system that would work in their state. Now, these Democratic guardrails that you were just you know, talking to us about and what you write about in the book, what are some of the consequences if they aren't put in place? Well, it, these are things that we have, you know, already been seeing and have seen, in fact, for a very long time in the U.S. And to talk about you know, the influence of money in politics, which is something that I, I don't think anyone really wants that in the U.S. You know, if you, if you talk to anyone who cares about, you know, our, our democratic politics, you know, our, our democracy, nobody wants politicians to be spending all of their time trying to raise money, but it's how our system is. And what that has created, and you could, there's lots of records of this from the 90s, is that the business community in the business communities in the US, the corporate community, has basically functioned as a pro-Beijing lobby and has you know, worked to water down policies towards China, has tried to you know, reduce some of these the sort of national security and democratic guardrails in terms of our economic relationship with China. And this is you know, something that, that isn't motivated by uh, you know, democratic values, but rather is, is motivated purely by money. And I think if we can work on getting some of that out, it can help the policymaking environment focus more on what is actually good for our country and good for our values. Now, I also wanted to highlight that you live in Taiwan and, you know, over the last couple of years and even more recently, we've really seen a heightened aggression from China toward Taiwan. Uh, just recently, China flew over 100 military planes toward the island. You know, based on your experience living there, how has living in Taiwan and the threat of the Chinese Communist Party changed, you know, since you moved there? I'll leave you with or I'll... I'll... I have, I have lots of thoughts on this, and 
I also I think I'll highlight maybe three main thoughts. And the, the very most important one, the first one, if if anyone remembers anything from this podcast, I want people to know that it is a little bit I know this sounds counterintuitive, but it is a little bit of a red herring to focus on a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, a military invasion or a military attack on Taiwan. This is a little bit of a red herring. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Chinese government has many forms of coercion in its toolkit, including economic and diplomatic, of course, uh, you know, military and cyber. It would be more than China's Vietnam if it were to try to launch some kind of amphibious assault on Taiwan. Many people I spoke, I speak to who have a lot of knowledge in this area say that this would absolutely be the Chinese government's last resort. The U.S., but the U.S. discussion focuses about 90 percent on the threat of an actual military invasion. And as long as we're doing it, we are not coming up with deterrence for other forms of Chinese government coercion, such as economic coercion um, or diplomatic coercion. So I would lay out a scenario, you know, that is, I think, much more likely it, uh, under which the Chinese government at a certain moment of domestic vulnerability in Taiwan simultaneously levies multiple forms of coercion, such as maybe a, you know, sort of an economic blockade combined with some, a lot of very intense political and diplomatic pressure and essentially forces the Taiwanese government to sign over some degree of sovereignty. This is a much more likely scenario. And I think that in, the, in Washington, D specifically, it is incredibly important that U.S. government officials and people at think tanks start gaming out these scenarios, talking about them, and working, you know, pushing the U.S. government to have very clear forms of deterrence. China, if you do an economic blockade, we will do this. Because right now, as it stands, if something like that happened, the U.S. toolkit would be essentially zero. That's my most important takeaway. And then my second, most my second sort of main takeaway is that. In Taiwan, people don't really feel like they're under siege, but sort of average Taiwanese person, you know, if you look at headlines in DC, it seems as though surely people in Taiwan are in a, like a constant sense of crisis. And mostly that is not true. Mostly people just think China's been threatening us for 75 years, they've never done anything, they're never going to do anything. And I think that in Taiwan, that narrative is outdated and that people in Taiwan have an insufficient um, sense of, of crisis. Now, I also wanted to ask you about, um, you previously lived in China from 2008 to 2012. Now, looking in from the outside, what have you seen as the biggest change that China has undergone? Yeah, you know, I was actually first in China um, for, for a few months, even earlier than that, in, in 2004 for a, a study program. And then I, and then I, I went back in 2008 in 2004, and, and also in 2008, um, and less and less the longer I lived there, there was this sense of openness and optimism and a, 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 an openness to democratic ideas and a, an admiration, a really strong admiration for, for democracy and a clear hope that, that China could become politically more open. And people were, it was, it was safer for Chinese people to have warm and close friendships with Americans, for example. And it, it, you know, 2004 was, was such a positive time to be in China. And you know, for, for that and other reasons. And what we have seen, 
under the last few years of Hu Jintao and you know, very dramatically under Xi Jinping is that because of the way that the Chinese government has really fanned the flames of anti-Western sentiment and anti-American sentiment and nationalism, while simultaneously creating a, a, an almost totalitarian and very paranoid security state, many Chinese people truly feel very angry at the U.S., feel a sense of superiority to the West, believe that the Chinese government has a better model, and also know that there's a, that there's a, a growing risk associated with you know, closeness with Americans and a, a, you know, admiration for um, even non-political American ideals. And, and that is such a shame because you know, there's 1.4 billion Chinese people as with you know, any very diverse populace, they're all different, but Chinese people are so hospitable, so loving towards their families. You know, they want what other people in the world want, which is to be happy and to be free. And you know, there's so many close people to people ties historically between you know, the US and China. And I, I think it is a, it's really quite a tragedy the way that, that Xi Jinping has worked to sever that and create bitterness between you know the Chinese people and other people groups in the world, where where really there shouldn't be, there should there should be friendship, and that, that's just to me a, a deep leads to a deep sense of sadness. Mm-hmm. Now, Bethany, just before we go, um, any final thoughts, and also how can our listeners follow your work at Axios? Well, you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is once weekly, comes out on Wednesdays, the Axios China newsletter. You can just type in Axios China subscribe and it'll take you to the right website. You can also follow me on Twitter at Bethany Allen EBR. Follow me on LinkedIn. And for, for final thoughts, I would just say that as we are increasingly focused on the challenge and the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, I hope that everyone remembers um, that at the end of the day, you know, the Chinese people are are good and fundamentally want the same things that Americans want and, and to keep their well-being in mind, too. Absolutely. Bethany, thank you so much for joining us. I will definitely leave a link to your book um, in the show notes for our audience members who want to take a look. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest and for your time. And with that, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Bethany Allen Ibrahimian. Make sure you subscribe to the Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great Tuesday and we'll be back with you all this afternoon for top news. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.